one of those sad, happy times. You know, he knew Jesus. He loved Jesus. He even got to preach the morning of the day he died. So uh, yeah, I preached, came home, wasn't feeling well, and died in his truck on the way to the ER. Um, but it was a great time. We have been running nonstop for two weeks now. My wife is home hitting a wall, and so she is in bed today. Um, but thank you. And um, I just love our community. Uh, I love the fact that, and, and, and we have a great community, that the fact that I could just call Jill and say, hey, we're out of here, take over. And I never called to say, how's it going? Um, I never called afterwards to say, how'd she do? Um, you know, there's just that trust there, and there's just that community that's here, and it's great. Yes, she did. I did ask, and, and other people, and so. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, it's, it's um, I had a great meeting last Tuesday night. Uh, we met with the pastors and um, told them the story of Azusa, told them the story of the House of Prayer and our heritage, and, and a number of them came here Thursday and, uh, to pray and to pray for the community. And there are um, some, uh, some churches that um, are going to start using the prayer room as a time to pray. So some great things have happened. But also this week I had, um, I heard a pastor tell myself and a bunch of other pastors that, we, uh, that we're in sin because we're not studying the Word of God and we're not listening to the Holy Spirit because we're not preaching the right messages because we're not preaching repent. And, um, but as I look around this room, I feel like I don't need to preach repent. Uh, first of all, I do study the Word of God. Secondly, I do listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, and thirdly, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. When I talked about keeping the first command first, I went back and I thought about that encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees. It, it was the guys who spent their life telling everybody um, how sinful they were that they weren't keeping the law. And when they came to Jesus, which is the great command, they, they thought they had a trap because if he focused on any of the don'ts, like if he said, well, the greatest command is don't commit adultery. And so they would say, well, you know, you're saying committing adultery is a worse sin than worshiping false gods and having idols before you? And so they, they had set a trap. So Jesus said the greatest command is not based upon what we don't do. The greatest command is based upon what we should do, and that is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. And um, I find as I look at the, the, the sermons of Jesus, it does say in, um, in Matthew chapter 4 that uh, after Jesus was tempted in one of the wilderness, he came out and um, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he did preach repentance, but as we look at every sermon Jesus taught, Never once. In fact, he's very clear. Um, in, in John, he says, God sent not his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He came to love us into relationship with God. And so um, we're, we're going to spend the next, I don't know how long, but we're going to look at the first great sermon that Jesus preached that's recorded in the Bible, and it's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But, but here's what happens. In Matthew 1, 
um, we have the genealogy of Jesus. So we have the genealogy of Joseph, we have the genealogy of Mary. Uh, they both converge on David and their lineage goes and, and uh, they become the father and mother of Jesus. Uh, David, I mean Joseph by surrogacy and, and Mary by labor. Um, and then in Matthew chapter 2, but showing up at Jesus' house when he, uh, not them following the star and showing up the stable, but showing up at Jesus' house when he's two years old. And uh, how they go back a different way after they find him. And Herod um, becomes fearful that there's a king that's going to replace him. And so he orders every male in Israel two years and under to be killed. And so an angel appears to Joseph and Mary and tells them to go to Egypt. And, and uh, they don't come back until uh, Herod dies. Uh, and then in uh, Matthew chapter 3, we, John the Baptist shows up, um, you know, preparing the way of the Lord and also baptizing Jesus. And then we go to Matthew chapter 4, and that's Jesus' journey into the wilderness uh, where he's tempted by Satan. As he comes out of the temptation, the angels come and minister to him. But the last part of chapter 4, it tells us that he went throughout Syria, of all places, preaching the gospel. And uh, as he preached the gospel, his main message was received because of signs and wonders. And it says people were healed and, uh, and, and uh, all kinds of miracles took place. And the crowds began to follow him, which brings us into Matthew 5, where Jesus takes his, says he takes his disciples. He goes up on a mountain and he sits down and begins to teach them. But there's 5,000 other people that are following because of the signs and wonders Jesus has done. And so that brings us again to preach what we have recorded as his first message. And it says in, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. So I think it's interesting. His, his disciples are seated around him. He's teaching his disciples and you know how my mind works. I'm always picturing scenes. Um, I'm in a room with a microphone, and sometimes I get told that I'm too softly spoken, and you can't hear me with a microphone and speakers. And Jesus is speaking to the 12, but 5,000 hear him. And so I'm always trying to figure out how that works. I, I don't know if it would work for me. I have a hard time having 50 hear me, uh, let alone 5,000. And he begins to speak, and, and I don't know how you look at scriptures, but... When I look at Jesus speaking and he's beginning to teach, um, I, I begin to think, it would seem to me that the first thing you're going to say while you have everybody's attention is, is the thing you want them to get. Because you might feel along the way you're going to lose them. Um, and so the first thing, so, so as we look at the very first thing, Jesus teaches his disciples in the hearing of 5,000, he says two very interesting things. The first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. First thing Jesus teaches. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, and blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now on the surface, as, as you and I look at this, and, and it's, it's interesting. Um, if you were just to walk up to somebody and say, are you a Christian? Um, and they said yes. And you said, so can you tell me what the first two Beatitudes mean? Can you tell me what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Can you tell me what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? I will tell you that last week, uh, when I was in a funeral, 
the message that was taught by my nephew, he used, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he's in the context of, yes, we were mourning. We're mourning the loss of a brother, a father, a brother-in-law, a grandpa. But um, Jesus wasn't talking about that. He wasn't talking about funerals when, when he's sitting down at the hill. And so um, the Sermon on the Mount, as I see it, is, is really um, a litmus test for us to um, assess our spiritual character and our ministry impact. In other words, our life is supposed to matter. Not just to Jesus and, and not just to my family, but my life is supposed to matter to people I encounter. And, and it's supposed to be, um, you know, Jesus calls us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes, the first part of it. He calls this to make it our primary goal. And, and, and the Beatitudes define love, they define spiritual maturity, they define kingdom lifestyle. And so as Jesus begins his ministry of teaching, he wants us to do a self-assessment, a self-examination of our love, of our spiritual maturity, and of um, our understanding of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus doesn't say much about the kingdom of God. And, and, and again, we, we can't assume that Matthew is writing chronologically. Um, but, but Jesus starts to talk about the kingdom in, 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 um, in, in a more specific way in Matthew 13. And it begins by him telling the parable of the sower. And you know the parable of the sower, the four different grounds. And after he tells that parable, um, the disciples ask him a question. And they said, okay, why are you talking to us in parables? Why, why is the kingdom of God? The answer is this, so that you will understand the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, and he, there, there's about seven more parables that are in Matthew 13. And every parable begins this way. The kingdom of God is like. And then he tells a story. And he applies it to the kingdom. So when we come back here to, to this verse, um, I'm not going to take time to go to the parables in Matthew 13 right now. We'll probably go to them after we get through the Sermon on the Mount. But just know the kingdom of God was very important to Jesus. It's the first thing he says. Those who are in, poor in spirit... Theirs, their inheritance, their possession is the kingdom of God. Now let's talk about this word blessed. This word blessed, um, I counted. Um, well, this is according to Strong's. Um, it appears 86 times in the New Testament, this word blessed. Um, it's the principle of God's approval founded on a righteousness that rests in one thing, our love for God. Not in our sinlessness, not in what we do or don't do. Um, our righteousness is measured in our love for God. That's why Jesus said, when they came and said, what is the most important command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And, and we went down and we specified what each one of those areas meant in our walk with him. And so it becomes the express symbol of happiness identified in our character. And, and the pureness of our character is defined in one word, holiness. Um, and, and so um, 
there's this clean, there's this clear understanding that sin is the source of all misery. And holiness is the cure for the woes of sin. I, I'm, I'm pretty certain if you encounter someone who is miserable with, in misery in their life, there, there are sin issues they're having a hard time overcoming. In fact, a lot of people, it's, it's, the, it's the repetition of the same sin. There's misery in their life. And so, you know, blessed is the word that is full of kingdom life. It emphasizes something that thrives. And here's, here's the part that we don't like. The, the true spiritual life thrives, endures persecution. The, the, we, we endure tribulation. We endure trials. That really is part of our blessedness. It's, um, you know, it's like they, they've, they've had this discovery over the past 20 years about um, they're, they're studying children with autism. And uh, some of the, the, the effects that, that our children growing up are having, I mean, like the, the ADD and, and all this, and, and they're finding the highest propensity of ADD and, and, um, and uh, autism is taking place in kids who were born cesarean section. Because there is something that happens in the child's life as they struggle to get through the birth canal. There's something about them taking in the, the drinking the, the macronum, the, 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 the having to be slapped on the butt when they come out and, and struggling for life. And, and they've found that there's something in that that helps the, the child develop uh, mentally. And the same is true in our spiritual life. Too many Christians want to be born by cesarean section. They just want God to cut it open, pull them out, and say, here I am. They don't want to go through the struggle of birth. They don't want to go through the struggle of life. They don't want to go through the struggles that are necessary to be whole. And so we need to understand that the tribulation, even persecution, are a vital part of the life God has called us to live. Um, and we're going to find in this day and this hour, the more we stand for righteousness, and, and, and David's was very true. We're not standing for politics. We're not standing for a, a political party. We're standing for the word of God. We're standing for the truth that God is the one who puts leaders in places and that God admonishes us to pray for them. Second Timothy, a number of places. In fact, we can take it a step further. And he tells us, to bless those who persecute you, and to pray for your enemies. So even if you don't want to pray because you like them, Jesus says, okay, pray because you don't like them. Love them. That's your responsibility. So it isn't about political party. It isn't about political position. It isn't about, uh, you know, walls and, and, and all that. It's about God. It's about God's kingdom. And, and we live in God's kingdom, and that's why when Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we said in Isaiah 55, where, where God says, look it, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when he says, pray kingdom come, will be done on earth, he's saying, pray heaven come down to earth, and God fulfill your purposes on earth 
um, according to your will. And so the first thing Jesus talks about is the poor in spirit inheriting the kingdom of God. It is ours. So let's look at what he means here about being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit, if I could change the wording, be poverty of spirit. And basically the definition is how we see ourselves spiritually. How, how we assess our personal relationship with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of, of, of the great need of experiencing spiritual growth in our heart and life. Nobody ever arrives. Um, I, I, have, I have dealt with people who think they've arrived. What happens is a religious spirit creeps in. Judgment based upon their assessment of their spirituality, they begin to judge other people, not according to God's word, not according to what it says to love, but they begin to judge people according to their assessment of their own spiritual life, and they've got it all together and you don't, and so they're going to tell you what you have to do to be more spiritual. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking, it helps with our problem of stumbling in and out of sin. To, to be impoverished in spirit deals with our walk in life and how we see our life. It helps us understand relationship with God. Being poor in spirit that helps us understand that we don't understand how deeply God loves us. You see, here, here's the thing. Most of us are measuring our spirit, our life, by how much we love him. And yet that's not what the word of God says. We measure our worthiness not by how much we love him, but how much he loves us. And, and that's why Jesus says, you want to know what the greatest command is? Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and, and heart, soul, spirit, uh, strength, and mind. So, so first of all, when we're going to, to assess our life, we shouldn't look at our life by how much we do or don't love God. We should always look at how much God loves us. And this is love, 1 John. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. So as we walk in this, poverty of spirit is to see ourselves as spiritually poor instead of spiritually rich. And when I say spiritually poor, I'm not talking about impoverished. I'm talking about our own spirituality assessed upon our own ability to be spiritual. Without the Holy Spirit, without God, we cannot live a spiritual life. Scripture is very clear. Without the Holy Spirit revealing to us who Jesus is, we never come to salvation. We don't come to salvation by chance. We don't come to salvation because, oh, that sounds like a good idea. We come to salvation because the Holy Spirit reveals to our heart who Christ is and reveals what? Not his condemnation of us, but his love for us. And we are drawn to him because of his love for us and because of the price he paid because he loved us. And so when we become, when we become poor in spirit, we understand God's highest purpose for us. We understand how much God desires to do in us and to do through us despite of who we are. And so we're called to walk in love for Jesus and people and then to inspire others to grow in that lifestyle. And so... That includes having a spirit that's vibrant, that's hungry for the Word of God, that, that knows how to pray.
and those who long for their mothers. <laughs> so, um, but to be poor in spirit um, is, is really the antidote for low self-esteem. Now, follow with me as I go. The biblical solution, when we're paralyzed by a sense of guilt or unworthiness or, or uselessness, is not to have a better self-esteem. And, and look it, I'll just talk for myself. When, when I am not in the right type of relationship, I know the Lord wants me to be in with him, whatever choices I make, um, uh, opposed to what he's calling me to do. There is a sense, sense of worthlessness. There is a sense of unworthiness. There is a sense of failure that, that would want to overwhelm us. And so we need to know that um, you know, the biblical antidote for that low self-esteem, for that moment of feeling less than, is to embrace the grace of God. It is to fully embrace God's grace. Listen... Um, this, this, I love, I love when I found this verse this week. Isaiah 41, 13. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Don't you, I mean, so just put your name there. Fear not, you worm Rick. I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So God's way of his way not to tell us we're a butterfly when we're really a worm. His way to free us is to help us understand that, yes, we are worms, but I came here to redeem worms. I came here to help you. I came here to walk it out with you. So he says, I'm going to help you. I'm your redeemer. Obey me now. I'll be with you. And so I want to walk you through a number of people in the Bible who understood what it meant to be poor in spirit, to be impoverished in spirit. And so... Let's talk about Moses. You say, well, God comes to Moses with a mission, and his mission is to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of 400 years of captivity. He calls Moses. So what does Moses say to God? Exodus chapter 3. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then again in chapter 4, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God gets upset with Moses. But understand, God is not upset with Moses because of his assessment of his own abilities. God's not upset because Moses says, You got the wrong guy. God is not upset because Moses says, look it, I can't, I can't talk in front of people. Even now that you've told me, I'm no better than I was before you asked me. I can't talk in front of people. Choose somebody else. And God was upset with Moses, not because of Moses' assessment of his weaknesses. God was upset with Moses because of Moses' lack in faith of what God could do through him. So we need to understand being poor of spirit is not judging ourselves according to our weakness, but understanding that in our weakness, he is made strong. 
So it's what is God going to do through me? What can God do through me when I am at my weakest place? How is he going to use me? How am I qualified? How am I as Moses qualified to go and to lead a million people out of captivity from the most powerful man on earth? How am I able to go stand before him and challenge him when I can't even say a sentence without stuttering? How do I do that? And God says, Moses, I don't want you to do it as Moses. I want you to do it as my servant. I want you to do it as the one who I've called to, who trusts me to put the words in your mouth, who trusts me to give you what you need to get done what I want to get done. And so God responds to Moses. And this is one of my most perplexing verses in the Bible. I've used this many times. So God says, Moses says to God, I can't talk. I'm not, a, I'm not a, you know, don't put me on your debate team because you'll lose every time. And here's what God says to Moses. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I? God makes blind people blind. God makes deaf people deaf. God makes mute people mute. Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth. I, I love that phrase. He doesn't say, go, I'll be with you, Moses. Go, I'll be with your mouth. And I will teach you what you shall speak. So we need to understand being poor in spirit is not recognizing our weakness and trying to find a way to have self-esteem to assess that we're better. Being poor in spirit is to recognize our weakness and how he wants to use that weakness to bring glory to him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Because once we allow our weakness to glorify God, we inherit the kingdom of God. We live and we walk in the kingdom of God. Quick words now. So God said, Moses, this is in Rick words now, knock it off. Stop looking at your own unworthiness and uselessness and look at me. I made the mouth. I'll be with you. I'll help you. I'll teach you what you say. Look at me and live. Every one of us needs to take hold of that right now. People don't share the gospel because they're afraid they're not going to know what to say. People don't stand up for what they believe because they're afraid the person that they might get in a conversation with is smarter to them or more eloquent than them, and, and they're going to look like an idiot. And God says, here's what I want. I want you to be willing to be an idiot and to trust me to put the words in your mouth, to trust me to use you in whatever situation, whatever scenario. And it may not be. It's like St. Francis of Assisi said, preach Christ always, use words when necessary. It may not be how you speak. It may be what you do, and as you do, you speak it. So let's look at a number of men and women in Scripture who were poor in spirit. Abraham when he's dealing with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? This is what the Lord says. Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. This is Moses saying, I who am but dust and ashes. So Moses, th this is the precursor to his conversation with God. I'm going to talk to God. 
I'm sorry, in Abraham. I'm going to talk to God. They were brothers, so I get them mixed up. They looked alike. Um, what does he want to talk to God about? God has just said he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham's going, I got a nephew living down there, and he's got a wife, and he's got a family, got a couple of daughters. So um, I don't necessarily want God to blow them up. So he comes before God, and he says, I am but dust and ashes. And he begins the conversation about how many righteous people have to be in a city for God to spare it. And... Um, so that's Moses. I mean, that's Abraham being poor in spirit. Jacob. When Jacob returned to the promised land after 20 years in exile and he wrestles with God in prayer at Bethel, listen to what he says. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and I have now become two companies. He recognized that what he has become, he left in exile, and now he's come back, and he's strong, and he has two companies. And he says, it's not because of me. I am nothing. It's because what you have done in me and through me. David, after Nathan the prophet confronts him for being an adulterer and a murderer, and I'll go a step further, from being a rapist and a murderer. And, and I say rapist simply from the fact that if, if you know authority structures and kingdoms, you cannot refuse the king. So even if Bathsheba says, dude, you're hot, and yeah, let's, let's get together, if she didn't feel that way, she still couldn't say no. So David's sin of adultery, impregnating Bathsheba, caused him to put her, bring her husband home, saying, okay, buddy, you've done a good job. Go have some fun with your wife, and then we'll go back out. And he says, I'm so committed to you, my king. I'm so committed to what you're doing. I'm not even going to have relations with my wife. I'm going to sleep outside my bedroom. I'm going to sleep outside my house on the floor by the door. So David says, okay, you leave me no option. I'm going to have you killed. So after David's done that, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him, look, because of that, you're, the child within Bathsheba is not going to live. And listen to what David says. The sacrifice acceptable to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So David, knowing that God despised his sin, understood that the poor in spirit, coming before God, poor in spirit, God would not reject him nor despise him. He was humble at one time when he was installed as king of Israel. Solomon actually was humble at one time. Solomon actually did say, I don't know what I'm doing. I need wisdom. Here's what he said. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have, made me ser you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. It was his poorness of spirit before God that caused God to say, you know, I'm going to, okay, son, anything you want, I'm going to give you, it's yours. And he asked for wisdom. And God said, because you asked for the best thing, I'm going to give you everything. But it was a poorness of spirit at that moment when Solomon recognizes before God the one thing he needs to rule this people is the wisdom of God. Job, after enduring all of his infliction and after his best friends came along and said, curse God and die. This is what Job says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Now, what did God, what, what did God allow Satan to do? God didn't do, you know, say, <clears throat> Satan. God said, have you seen my, my, my servant Job? And Satan says, well, of course. Anybody would serve you if you bless him. Bless him like you bless him. <clears throat> and we go through this process of, okay, you can do anything, but don't touch him. And eventually, he gets the sores all over his body. After he goes through all of that, after his friends say, hey, dude, there's got to be secret sins somewhere. God is just not going to let this happen to you. You've got to be doing something that we don't know about. And when he convinces them that he hasn't, they say, well, then curse him and die. And what does Job say? He says, I've heard of you by my learning. My whole life I've been taught about you. But now I've experienced you. Now I've seen you. And I recognize that I need to repent because I'm nothing but dust and ashes. That, that was not low self-esteem. That was a recognition of the worthiness of God measured against the unworthiness of man. And even though Job did nothing to warrant what he went through, he recognized his own sinfulness, his own weakness, and he repented before God. Isaiah, when he has his vision of the throne room of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Instead of going, Whoa, I got to see God, which would probably be my reaction. He said, Oh, man, I have unclean lips. I'm amongst the people of unclean lips, and I've been allowed to see God. Whole different view when you're poor in spirit. Then we move into the New Testament. And, and, and the centurion who is waiting, we don't know his name. He's waiting for, for Jesus to heal his servant. And listen, listen to what he says. When Jesus was not far off from the house, the centurion sent his friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is not a Jew. This is a Roman. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Therefore, I'm not going to presume that you're going to come. But say the word and let my servant be healed. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude, I tell you, not ever in Israel have I found such faith. That faith came out of being poor in spirit. I'm not even worthy to have you come in through my front door. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. The Canaanite woman. Now, she's the one who is refused to come to the table um, because she's not a Jew. And so, Matthew 15. But he answered, and he's talking to his disciples. But he answered and said, I was not, ex I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus said, I wasn't sent to the Jew." To the Gentiles, I was sent to Israel, which is true. Jesus' whole ministry was to the Jews. It was the disciples who went to the Gentiles, beginning with Peter um, and uh, Cornelius, and after that, Paul and, and all these outreaches to, to, to the Gentiles. So Jesus said, I wasn't sent. Then she, this is the Canaanite woman, came and worshipped him, not being a Jew, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now understand, Jews called Gentiles dogs. 
And so Jesus is being Jewish here. He's just saying, I don't take what the Lord has given me to give to Jews, and I don't throw it before dogs. And the woman in the poorness of her spirit was not offended. She didn't say, fine then, and leave. What did she say? Yes, Lord. Yet even little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. Poorness of spirit. Recognizing the fact that, you know what? I am a dog. I'm not a Jew. I'm unclean. You're right. I don't deserve to be here. But even dogs get to eat crumbs. The poorness of spirit. Paul, in all of his many letters, and I could have put a lot more in here, but if I did, it would be four pages, and you'd be upset with me, so I only put a couple in here. Romans 7, 18. I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. When he wrote to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. When he writes to Timothy, I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So in other words, he said, the fact that people can look at me and have despised me and know my weakness and know my brokenness, and they can look at me and see what God has done in me, they're going to want God because of my poorness of spirit. We grow in poverty of spirit in a lot of ways. First of all, by understanding what the Bible says God wants to do in us and through us. We're, 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 we don't do anything in our own strength. You know, Paul says, not of works, lest any man should boast. By reading... I'm a reader. You know that. I encourage you to read. You know, if you don't like to read theology books, read biographies. Read stories of, read about Hudson Taylor. You know, read, you know, my favorite book is not in print anymore, but you can buy it on Amazon for as little as three bucks and as much as ten. I even bought it for 99 cents. But it's called Seven Guides to Effective Prayer. It's the story of seven different intercessors. And the miracles God did through their prayer life. That's an encouragement to pray. You know, um, and, and in the last um, three weeks, I've heard people say in the context in this, in this room, one of the seven things that, that we are doing for 2019. And that says, wow, somebody actually listened to me. And as I look back, at, don't. Don't take lightly what, what you hear, whether it's a podcast, whether it's me, whether it's a teaching, whether you're reading something. Allow those things to get into your spirit um, because they will help you be poor in spirit. Testimonies which encourage us in our love, our obedience, our power, our wisdom. We can't experience more of his fullness without his help. Let me say that again. You cannot experience more of God's fullness without God helping you. Poverty of spirit helps with the reality that things are not good enough as they are. In other words, 
if you ever reach the place where you're fully satisfied, hold on. Because something's going to come along real quick to dissatisfy you. Just think of Job. Job was leading the life. Everything was good. Money, possessions, family, honor. God just knocked it all out of him and even... And, and he understood. It had nothing to do with him. It had to do with the goodness and the greatness of God. Jesus addressed this as the root problem when he writes to the church at Laodicea, which is Revelation chapter 3. There are seven churches, you know. And, and again, I, I just, I love the fact that Jesus has this secretary named John. He says, John, take a letter. But who does he tell him to write these letters to? Write to the angel of the church at Laodicea. Write to the angel of the church at Sardis. Write to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. The angel of the church at Ephesus. Just blows my mind. Didn't write a letter to the people. Write a letter to the angel. So what does that tell me? That tells me the city of Azusa, the church in Azusa has an angel. I don't know, but I'm waiting for Jesus to write him a letter. <laughs> Although, every time Jesus writes a letter, he says, good job, but let me show you where you're not poor in spirit. And so when he writes to the church of Laodicea, you know, listen to what he says. He's, he's, he's already told them the good stuff they're doing, and, and then here comes the, the catcher. You are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. So let me just put that real clear. If you want to be to the place to where God is giving you everything you want, and you have no need of anything, get ready to become a pile of puke. Because God says, once you're rich and wealthy and have everything you need, and, and you forget that you are wretched, <laughs> miserable, poor, blind, and naked, that's what you become to me. As many as I love, I rebuke. Be zealous and repent. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We sit on the throne. So we need to be very careful that our pursuit is not to be satisfied. Our pursuit is not to, if I can just get married and have kids and own a home, I'm going to be happy. What if you don't get married? Or what if you do and you don't have kids? Or what if you have kids and you can never afford a home in California? Is that God's fault to become embittered? Or what if he gives it all to you? What if you have the great job and the great paycheck? And, and you know, Jesus says, so what if I give everything I have to the poor? If I don't have love, it's not a big deal. If I'm not poor in spirit, it doesn't matter. That's what Jesus says. And he says, you're not going anywhere, buster. Well, there goes buster. Then Jesus says, <laughs> Then Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So being poor in spirit is how we see ourselves. 
Mourning is about how we feel about what we see. So, mourning, when we see our brokenness, when we see that we are not what God wants us to be or not what we could be, mourning causes us to come to a desperate place to be extreme, to pursue breakthrough of heart in the poverty of spirit. So when, when, we, when we begin to feel the poorness of our spirit, we begin to respond out of, I need more of God. Because when we truly feel poorness of spirit, it doesn't focus on our lack. It focuses on his supply. Like Jesus, like I said, Jesus got mad at Moses. Jesus doesn't have us to be poor in spirit so that we can see how little we love him or how much we fail or, or, or how less he does it so we will understand how much he loves us. So as we mourn, as, as we feel how he sees, our lifestyle begins to be a continual longing and aching for more of God. That should be the longing of our heart. The longing of our heart should be more of God because everything else falls into place out of that. If our longing is something, is a place, is a job, you know, is, is, is a career, if, if that is our longing, we will never be satisfied. But if our longing is for God and for what he wants for us, we will continually walk in the fullness and understand there's more. When we get to point A, we're going to go, wait, there's more. Let's go to point B. Wait, there's more. Let's go to point C. We don't get to point A and go, wow, I've arrived. This is exactly what I wanted. I'm happy. I'm going to live every, happily ever after. So true spiritual mourning comes from our falling short of a poverty of spirit. In other words, when we recognize that our impoverished spirit is of God and not of a failure on our part, we begin to mourn over the fact that we responded incorrectly. We begin to mourn over the fact that, you know what? This actually was a good thing. God was actually using it to teach me something, and instead of getting mad at him, and instead of being offended on him, oh my goodness, I repent. My heart is so broken because I missed that opportunity. And we turn around and we walk it. He says, those you know, mourning cannot be limited exclusive to, to the sorrow for our sin. It also has to be a, a more comprehensive understanding of the integrity of our heart. It's back to holiness. It's a back to, to, to being righteous before God. Listen to what Isaiah said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may call, be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, we're supposed to mourn because when we mourn because we have fallen short of who God's called us to be, we take that morning, he's going to give us beauty for ashes. He's going to give us joy in the midst of our morning because he is going to show us where he's taking us and how he's using this to what ultimately says that he may be glorified. 
Everything in our life should be about bringing glory to God. Pastor, we are all children of God who are part of the kingdom, and the ultimate goal of our life should be that everything that I say and everything that I do will bring glory to God and to God alone. An inclusive grief that refers to the disenfranchised, contrite, and bereaved, those who are poor in spirit spend their lives serving. Those who cannot enter into the solitary with the pain of the world and, and not try to extract themselves from it. Jesus didn't say, did not say they that sorrow. He said they that mourn. There's a big difference between mourning and being sorrow. So God has given us a ton of blessings, but we will never move past. The greatest blessing we have is to be poor in spirit. Isaiah 62, 2. But on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God said that to the prophet Isaiah to Israel way before Jesus ever said it to the people on the hill. And when he said it to the people on the hill, they knew what Isaiah had said. All of a sudden, what Isaiah had said became alive to them. The reward for the poor in spirit is the kingdom. And like I said, we'll spend time when we get to Matthew 13. Um, not theirs shall be the kingdom. Jesus promised that any who live poor in spirit would experience the kingdom realities now. In other words, he didn't say if you're poor in spirit one of these days, you'll get the kingdom. He didn't say when you die, you'll get the kingdom. He said if you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom now. That's why when Jesus, and, and there's debate on whether or not Jesus really said at the end of, the, of what we call the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. There is debate on whether the scribes didn't get overly excited um, when they read that and kind of added it as a praise. But the reality is the same. His is the glory and the power and the kingdom forever. And the kingdom is now. Jesus said the kingdom of God heaven the kingdom of God is at hand John the Baptist said it's at hand that doesn't mean it's a distant reality that doesn't mean it's a future promise it means that we live and walk in and now that's why Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven the reward for living in spiritual mourning is that we will be comforted what does that mean the goal is not for mourning to end the goal is for us to be comforted. And, and the, the purpose of mourning is not a self-inflicted condemnation. In fact, the Bible's really clear. Paul, you know, Paul says when he writes to the church of Romans, in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We walk as the poor in spirit. There's no condemnation for our failure. We mourn at our failure but there's no condemnation because our goal is to press towards the goal of the high call of God in Christ Jesus, to continually turn and walk toward him. Being comforted does not remove the weight of mourning, and it doesn't make everything all right. I, 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 I think we've all learned this, or we should learn this, that it is at our deepest times of disappointment or, or lack that we pursue God most. It's, it's, it's when we are passionate and desiring and crying out for God to do something, 
when we're praying your kingdom come, when we pursue him the most. I, I don't know many people who, when they have money in the bank and, and life is good, that, that they're passionately on their face before God crying out, give me more. They're happy. They're satisfied. So being comforted means passion for Jesus becomes our heart's passion. In intercession, we're comforted because we ask for the heart of the Father. That's why Jesus could say, look, it, my life's pretty simple. I'm only doing what I see the Father do. Whatever you hear me say, I've already heard him say it, and I'm just repeating what he said. That's how you walk in the poorness of spirit. Poorness of spirit, we recognize when we didn't hear God and we said our own words, or we didn't see what God was doing and we went our own way. Because we understand, he's very clear, look it, my ways are a lot higher than yours, you know? So don't think you got it all figured out. Because I've, I have learned, and I told you this. And in fact, when I, when I shared with the pastors on Tuesday night, I was very vulnerable. I said, I just have to tell you, you guys are not what I thought this would look like. That's, that's my fault. When I've been praying all this time for pastors to come together for a strong AMA, it didn't look like this. But I suddenly realized God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And he's going to do it differently than I thought he was going to do it. And the only thing that's going to look like I thought it was going to look is that he's going to be glorified. That's it. So each day, as we begin our personal inventory, you know, I don't know if you have a list you go down every day when you pray. I have a book full of prayer lists, and so I've had to break it down. To do that, there's a certain list I pray every day. When my wife and I go to bed every night, she has these three-by-five cards on her nightstand in bed, and so when we pray, we're going through the cards to make sure we cover it all. But one of the things we need to do every morning is take personal inventory. Lord, in my poor in spirit today, how do you see yourself as you walk into the day? Do you see yourself like, this is a good day, I got it all worked out? Or do you see yourself like, God, no matter what I encounter today, I'm going to need you? I'm nothing. You are everything. And, and how do we feel about what we see? Are we overwhelmed or are we encouraged because his grace is sufficient for us to walk us through? So when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, and blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he set the foundation for the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He wanted them to hear the Sermon on the Mount through a poor spirit and through a mourning heart. Because understand, when we get through the Sermon on the Mount, remember when, and, and I'm going to close with this, when, when, when the Pharisees came to him and said, what's the greatest command? Expecting him to say, a thou shalt not. You know, he dealt with the heart. He didn't deal with what the flesh does. He dealt with the heart. Love the Lord your God. When he goes to the Sermon on the Mount, he goes and he touches all of those things that the Pharisees wanted him to say. He says, you've heard it say you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, in kingdom life, if you think it, you've done it. You've heard it say you should not kill. In kingdom life, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And he showed us that, that all these things in kingdom life are heart issues. They're not flesh issues. Adultery is not necessarily what the flesh does. Adultery is acting not what's already taken place in our heart. Because if your heart is set on things above and your heart is set on God, when the enemy comes in with a temptation, 
whether it's a lustful thought or to act upon adultery, you're not going to do it because your heart's in the right place. But if your heart is already in adultery, the body follows along really easily. It says, yeah, let's, let's go. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Ah, we thank you, God, that we are poor in spirit. We thank you, God, that, that we see, as we saw all these men and women through Scripture, how they saw themselves. I'm dust. I am nothing. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I have a contrite heart. That's what you find pleasure in. God, I'm asking that we would be a people who are known for our poorness of spirit, that we depend solely, completely upon you for every single thing. <coughs> Father, we also ask that we will respond correctly to our lack and that we will mourn. God, not that we will beat ourselves up, not that we will condemn ourselves, but we will mourn in such a way that beauty becomes, ashes become beauty, that sadness becomes the oil of joy, and that you're glorified. So, Father, we ask that we can walk this out, that we can be known as people who live according to a lifestyle that you laid out at the beginning of your ministry and you set as the foundation for those who would become your disciples and those who would declare the truth to build your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.